Open the Word of God with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, commonly called the love chapter of the Bible. And let's get started there with what the Lord wants to teach us and remind us about the importance of love. The introduction that we had this morning was that the bonding agent for the living stones is brotherly love, and that is the case. We want to learn more about it and be reminded of its importance for the adorning of our church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 lies in an epistle to a church that had many problems. They were a fighting church. They were a quarrelsome church with divisions and factions among them. Both in chapters 1 and 3, the apostle points out that some said they were of Paul, some were loyal to Peter, some were Apollos, and others the spiritually self-righteous ones said they were of Christ. Yet they wanted to fight, and Paul said, I can't even write you spiritual things because you're still carnally minded. It's It's a pitiful church at this point. He's going to correct them with two epistles. One of their problems was, and he mentions it in chapter 1 of this epistle, that they were first place in churches with spiritual gifts. They had more people wanting to speak in tongues and prophesy and have a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom than any other church in the New Testament. And Paul admitted to them in chapter 1 that they came behind no church in their number of spiritual gifts. Three chapters in this epistle deal with their spiritual gifts, their pride in those gifts, and their chapters 12 through 14. 12 through 14, and right in the middle... Paul gives the love chapter because that would settle their disputes and fightings if they would learn to love each other the proper way. Now, in that context, we look at a tighter context, and it's the last four verses of chapter 12, where the apostle lists the gifts and offices of the New Testament church from top to bottom. As we've pointed out many times, charismatics ought to pay attention and find out that tongues is the least gift God ever gave to the church. And it's listed last. This list is very carefully ranked in value and authority of its offices and gifts. So let me read it. God hath set some in the church first. So you can tell this is a ranked list. First, apostles. Secondarily, notice the care of the Spirit of God for you to know that the gifts are being ranked. God hath set some in the church, first apostles, and we would entirely agree, secondarily prophets, yes indeed, thirdly teachers. After that comes miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. There's the gifts in order. And then the question, are all apostles? No, God's made a difference. There's only a few. Are all prophets? Rhetorical question demanding a negative answer, no. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret those tongues? No. Well, if I don't have any of the gifts, then I must not have an important role in the house of God. What do I get to do in the house of God? Verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Stop coveting the gifts at the bottom of the list like the modern charismatic movement, and covet the best gifts, which no longer exist, apostles and prophets. 
And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. While I have listed and ranked these gifts, and while it is proper to covet the best gifts, and to desire to be the most that you can be for the Lord, yet I want to show you a more excellent way than anything in the list I just gave you. Every child in here, every woman in here, every man, no matter your age, there is a role that you have, and there is something you can do that is greater than being an apostle, greater than being a prophet, greater than speaking and interpreting tongues. What is it? It's chapter 13. It's chapter 13. Yet show I unto you a more excellent way, and he shows us the more excellent way in chapter 13. I do not want to hastily run over this chapter and its context and the introduction I just gave you. I want you to appreciate the weight that is on 1 Corinthians 13. And that weight is continued in the first three verses, which exalt spiritual gifts by hyperbole. They don't even exist. And there weren't even men with them, like is described here. And yet charity is better than any of them, even to the imagination. Let's look at them. Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. There's nothing in the Bible to indicate that there's an angelic language like charismatics want us to believe. Whenever angels have spoken, they have spoken in a language that was written down by us, and we understand it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but let's say there was one. This is hyperbole. This is an extreme example of a case, all three verses the same way, to point out the value of Christian love and brotherly love and charity between church members. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I had that last gift, but I had the best form of it ever known and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The noise that I am making is obnoxious and irritating if I don't have charity. And charity is defined for us in one sentence in verses 4 through 7. We'll get to that in a moment. But notice, these Corinthians are being set back in their PUs. This is the list of gifts, and I, the one writing them to you, is an apostle. Those of you that want to speak in tongues, you have the least gift. It's below being a deacon. It's below being a helper in the church. It's below governments. And I want to show all of you church members a gift that is greater than any of us, including the apostle writing you. That's what he said in chapter 12, the last four verses. And then he refers to tongues in verse 1. Now we have verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, let's move on up the list from tongues at the bottom to the number 2 gift. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, not a few, I understand I just don't know them and can quote them and can show them to you in the Bible. I understand them. I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I don't just get a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. I have it all. Though that were to be true of me, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and cast them into the sea, as Jesus once described to the lunatic's father, and have not charity, I am nothing. If I had all of these gifts, highly ranked, highly rated, extreme gifts, I am nothing. 
Corinthians, when you look at the list and you want to find where you, you're pegged and where you want to find where your neighbor is pegged, stop looking at the list and stop pegging yourself. Measure yourself by this standard, charity. Because without it, no matter where you peg yourself on the list of spiritual gifts and offices in the church, you are nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. This is a harder verse to understand. In the verse, charity is compared to charity, and charity without charity is nothing. You say, what in the world are you saying? Well, if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I give everything I have to feed the poor, that is ordinarily called charity. But I do it while having quarrels and begrudging and envying and having bitterness with any of you, it does me no good at all. It profits me nothing. Getting along with you and you getting along with me is a greater act of charity and the charity that counts to God far above giving everything I have. Jesus knows when your percentage goes above 2% and 10% and 95% because he noticed the widow woman giving two mites and he said she hath cast more into the treasury than any of those casting from their abundance because she has put in her entire living. He knows the difference. And so when it says in the Bible that if I were to give everything I own and it profiteth me nothing, and that is charity, but yet without charity, that charity is worthless, what a lesson. What a lesson. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and others like them publicize their giving out of their abundance. They give a little, and they get enormous tax benefits for doing so. But this verse tells us that if they were to be giving it for the right reasons, which they never are, because they're both pagan, blaspheming God-haters, if they were to be giving it with a good heart for good reason, it still would amount to nothing unless they could humble themselves to a little congregation like this and come in and serve every person in here from top to bottom. Because that's true charity that we're about to define. These verses are weighty and powerful. This is the bonding agent of a church. The bonding agent of a church is not a great pastor. It's not an apostle. It's not a prophet. It's not miracles. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not the whole church speaking in tongues. It's not the church speaking in the tongues of angels. It's not having all wisdom. It's not getting all doctrine nailed down. It's not having the seven proofs of this and the five phases of that and everything else that we might have put together over the years. It is this right here, charity. And without it, it's an irritating sound to come into church. We're nothing, and it profits us nothing. That leaves us utterly naked before charity. It strips away every pretense. Nothing counts except getting along with each other in the way that Paul's about to define for us. This is the loftiest sentence in literature. You know, in our church library, there is a video of 
William Tyndale's life, who's the first man to print the English Bible. And he was doing it on the mainland of Europe for persecution sake. And they were shipped in bags of grain to London. And in that movie, and I'm sorry that I'm so simple, but in that movie when a dock handler opens up one of those bags and runs his arm down in the grain and brings out a wrapped package and tears it off and opens it and reads one sentence, I bawled like a baby. Because do you know what words I heard in English for the first time? What words were being said for the first time? Charity suffereth long and is kind. Amen. And the rest of this sentence that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13. What more could the Apostle Paul have said to tell us that brotherly love is very important? Can you imagine anything else he could have told us? How, how could he have done it any different way? A pastor doesn't make a church. It's the living stones loving each other that makes a church. Right. It's not the doctrine that makes a church. It's the love of the brethren that makes the church. It's not the wisdom and it's not the knowledge, even when they're spiritual gifts of a high rank and high order. It's brotherly love. Okay, right. Amen. I hope you can see it. Me yelling it further or longer or showing other references relating to these wouldn't help. I hope you see it. Now for the definition. This is all you have to do. <laughs> and, and you know, I say that with a little bit of humor because it's just one sentence. And I say it with a little bit of sobriety because it's a pretty long list. And yet, it is not impossible. I, when, when the Bible says that we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us, Amen. That is by his spirit that is dwelling in us. In Paul's case, when he said those words in Philippians 4.13, he was describing contentment, that he had learned contentment and he could be content through the power of Christ in him. We can do this. Right. He has given us an example. God, our Father, has. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has. He has defined it for us. And he's given us more references on this subject than anything else. That is why this sermon series is entitled, Love is the Greatest. Right. And as you can tell by that little handout you have, there's at least 16 greatest aspects of love over other graces and virtues in the New Testament. This sentence that I'm about to read to you is precious. This sentence to a regenerate heart and mind proves the Bible a supernatural book. There is no other writing of man that can define love even close to this. I'm not saying it would convince a skeptic. Nothing can convince a skeptic except God himself. And he's able to turn any skeptic to be a believer. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. 
beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And that's the end of the sentence. Fifteen phrases defining love, brotherly love, Christian love, charity. Fifteen phrases. If two people, if a church, if a group were ever to live by this single sentence, they would experience the ultimate that is, ca- that is possible on earth of peace and pleasure and profit. Period. There is nothing like this description. This is love. This is not love of God. For the time being, get over your love of God. Do not excuse yourself that you love God if you don't love the brethren. John taught very plainly, if you say that you love God and you do not love your brother, you are a liar and you've deceived yourself. There is nothing about the love of God in 1 Corinthians 13. There is nothing about the love of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13 in either direction. I don't suffer the love of Christ. I don't suffer long with Christ. Come on, brethren, grow up. I do not want us to be legalistic fatalists in thinking about our legal position in Christ or of God's love toward us or our love for God because that is how we cheat and escape the force and weight of a passage like this. Because it is so easy to say, well, I love God. And to go home on the way home saying, I love you, Lord. And to pray to him, I love you, Lord. And to have the conversations with him in the night that you've had related to you. That's easy. Getting along with you is the hard part. And let's just be honest about it all. Getting along with me is the hard part. And, And that's what real love is. And that's the love right here. You know that I know and we just studied David, the love of God is the first commandment, period. And David delighted in God, and David loved God. But there is no love of God in 1 Corinthians 13. It's love of the brethren. It's how we relate to each other. And I just read the sentence of how we relate to each other. And then in verses 8 through 10, which are very powerful verses for Baptists, verses 8 through 10, Paul told the Corinthians... Charity never fails. Charity is never going to end. Charity is always useful. Charity always prevails. Charity should always be used. But the other gifts that you people are worried about are all going to go away. And so it says tongues will cease. Prophecies will fail. That doesn't mean that a prophet of God is going to make a prophecy and the prophecy won't come to pass. It means the gift of prophecy is going to end. And prophets will no longer be able to stand up in a church service and explain the will of God to the church before, because they didn't have a New Testament. That's what was happening at Corinth. One prophet could stand up and go for five minutes and explain the will of God to the church, and then he'd sit down because all of a sudden he's empty. And another one would pop up and go for three minutes. And that is how they had the, the will of God revealed to them before there was a completed New Testament. Prophecies would fail in the sense of the gift of prophecies. Tongues would cease and knowledge, it shall vanish away. Knowledge is never going to disappear in this universe. Knowledge is going to be enhanced when we get to heaven. But what, what does it mean when knowledge shall vanish away? The gift of knowledge. The early church gift of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, as it's described in chapter 12, would go away. 
those gifts would go away because they were just partial gifts. They were incomplete gifts. They were temporary gifts, and they're going to be replaced by something perfect, complete, and final. And that's the Word of God. When Scripture came, the man of God was made perfect, complete, thoroughly thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He didn't need to be an apostle. He didn't need a gift of prophecy. He didn't need a gift of knowledge. He didn't need a gift of wisdom because he had the Word of God, and it is the storehouse of wisdom. It's got everything. It's the perfect law of liberty, James would would call it. And so these verses are very weighty in for us being cessationists. And if you don't know what that word means, it's a newly coined expression that we believe that the charismatic gifts, the spiritual gifts, the apostolic gifts have ceased. We are cessationists. They've ceased. Because when that which is perfect has come, came and it's the word of God, then that which is in part shall be done away, and it was done away by around 70 A.D. when the scriptures came together and Peter acknowledged all of Paul's epistles in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, and Paul quoted from Luke in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and they confirmed each other's apostolic writings, and the New Testament came together. Then, in verses 11 through 13, is a description of Paul saying that the church right now is at an infant stage, and it's going to grow up. And when it grows up, there's three things abiding with it to keep it, faith, hope, and charity. But of these three, the greatest of these is charity. Prophecies are going to go away. Knowledge is going to disappear as far as gifts are concerned. Three things would abide, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. And Paul said, you know, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. And right now the church is at a childish state, but it is going to grow up and be mature like a man. And that's when we get the complete revelation of God and every church is going to have it. And so we have 1 Corinthians 13. It's been taught phrase by phrase before. It's on our website. I've got to refer you to that. Otherwise, this is going to turn into a longer series than I had intended. The Bible, our Bible, in both Testaments presents loving neighbors and brothers as the top relational command and duty. And we want to see that. We esteem God's precepts concerning all things to be right and we hate every false way. The Lord's told us how to do it. We esteem his way as being right, and we want to hate any contrary idea. And you know, most of those contrary ideas don't come from the mouth of Stephen Hawking. They come from our own hearts, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts and the reins. And so we want to war against any thought that I'm a good Christian. I'm a good church member. We want to measure ourselves by God's standard. And yes, love is the greatest measure. But don't put it down yet, children, because that's not number one. We, it's my job to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus so far as the Lord will bless the efforts of your pastor. We've recently studied David. And David loved the house of God, and he loved congregational worship, and he loved the brethren. And he told us so. We had mentioned in the prayer in a prayer in the back room this morning, Psalm 27.4, one thing. David was exceptional because of his priorities. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And why, David, do you want to be there? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want to see the beauty of God like we did from Psalm 147. Do you know that you saw the beauty of God from Psalm 147 this morning? And to inquire in his temple. 
We want to learn the will of God, and you're getting that right now from 1 Corinthians 13, that the will of God is for us to get off our high horses and condescend to men of low estate and to love each other in this church and put up with all the irritating, obnoxious things that you do to, to make me upset. And, I, and listen, brethren, I, I know better than, I, I hope I know as well as anyone in here that all of you are golden retrievers and I'm a pit bull on crack. Uh, I know what you have to put up with. So that's why I have to preach on love. <laughs> and I promised this church that I would preach on love at least once a quarter. That's right. We didn't start out this way. We started out thinking that a church was a seminary class. And as long as we could dot, dot all our I's and cross all our T's, that's all we needed. That is not what the Bible teaches. Right. Look at, look at what, it make, what it says about wisdom and knowledge and understanding, <clears throat> mysteries and so doesn't care, doesn't profit us, and you're nothing. I want all of you to be something. I want all of you to be great in the sight of the Lord like David was. David told us in Psalm 122 that he loved the house of God in Jerusalem, the temple that was there, for my brethren and companions' sakes. Right. He loved congregational worship. He loved the body of believers that he had even in the Old Testament. We want to have that. He told us in Psalm 119 in a couple of places that I'm a companion of all them that fear thy name and keep thy commandments. Right. And that's, that's what binds us together is our mutual fear of God, love of Christ, and commitment to the scriptures as baptized believers. The subject, this subject of love being the greatest will do more for you growing in favor with God and man than any other. Amen. I hope you can see that what it says here in 1 Corinthians 13. If you're able to put those things into practice... You can grow in favor with God and men. Because love is the greatest commandment toward God. It's the greatest commandment toward each other. What is love? Of God, which we're going to leave for this particular study. But of, of God, it is a passionate desire to please Him, know Him, serve Him, enjoy Him, and exalt Him. That's the love of God. Let me say that again. What is love? Of God, it's a passionate desire to please Him, know Him, serve Him, enjoy Him, and exalt Him. Now, what is love of others? And this is where we want to be precise, though I'm going to state it different ways, and we're going to consider it in different light at various times. What does it really mean to love the brethren? What does it really mean to love one another? And by the way, let me chase that for just a few seconds. That compound pronoun that's in the Bible, one another, is one of the most fascinating literary devices in our King James Bibles. One another. That means that whatever is attached, whatever verb is attached to that compound, reciprocal pronoun, you are to do toward every other member of the body. Every other church member, you are to do it as an individual toward them considered individually. One Another one is singular. Another is singular. One another. It says love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Submit to one another in the fear of God. One another. Oh. There's over 20,000 relationships in our little church. In mathematics, it's permutations and combinations that make up how many pairs, how many pairs of two do we have in this church of one and another one another, but then you have the responsibilities from the one to the another and from the another to the one, because then it's one to another. Never mind. <clears throat> Are you, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Now, what if 
every living stone in here were to love every other living stone in here. Would that compact this body together? If we have quarrels or we have grudges or we have differences or divisions or we have little sects or splits or schisms, what kind of a church are we? This is how God views us. He doesn't care about the building. He doesn't care about the grounds. He doesn't care about the financial statement. He cares about our relations. What is love of others? It is selfless desire and help for their profit by Bible terms with an eye to heaven. You say, that's too complicated for me to grasp. Okay, I don't blame you. It's too complicated for me to tell. Let me say it again, though. It's selfless desire and help for their profit by Bible terms with an eye to heaven. What is real brotherly love? It is doing anything that I can for you from true bowels of compassion in your interest to help you stand perfect and complete in all the will of God before Jesus Christ at His coming. Real love is my commitment and my action and my service toward you and yours toward me to help you get ready for the most important event in your life, and that's to meet Jesus Christ at His coming. That is real love. Do you know that if a young couple, not married, had that as their goal, how they would treat each other? Fornication wouldn't even get close to their thoughts. If a young couple, and it's true of any of us, any problems that we have relationally come from the fact that we lose sight of what real love is. Real love is my selfless desire above all else and above anything in my life to help you meet Jesus Christ and God's full approval in your life. It is selfless. And we're going to define it more momentarily, but I just wanted to get us started. I want to set the bar up where it belongs. Love is not a feeling. Love is not circumstantial. Love is not lust. Mm -hmm. Love is not something you get from another person. Love is something you give another person. Love is a choice. It is a choice to give to another person your efforts in prayer, your efforts with them, your efforts toward them, your forgiveness toward them, to help them grow up to be perfect in the sight of God at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a high bar, but that is an obtainable bar, and it's the bar we want to set for love in our church. It's beautiful. What if every one toward every another in this church had only their interest in meeting Christ as their goal? Those living stones would be compacted together in one tight body presided over by the Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit animating us and God rejoicing in heaven to see such a united, peaceful, loving, serving family getting ready to meet him. Every father and mother know a little tiny bit of what I'm speaking of. I, I have had a family as well. They've all moved away. I mean, I mean, not moved very far, but they just don't come home very often. You know, when they're sitting around the table and there's a united family and they're at peace and they're loving each other, it's wonderful. Well, God has adopted us. We're his sons and his daughters. And when we're all getting along and loving each other, it puts delight in the soul of our Heavenly Father. Every, Every parent in here knows what I'm talking about. I want to give God that. 
I'm just Balaam's transportation to you to convey the word of God to you about love. While the love of God is greater in duty and value than the love of others, I understand that. Nonetheless, love of others is very crucial. While the love of God is greater in duty and value than the love of others, this study is only about loving others. While the love of God is greater in duty and value than the love of others, the love chapter right here is only about brotherly love. We are a doctrinal church committed to truth, but love is greater by several measures. This does not mean we compromise doctrine for love, but it does mean we emphasize love as New Testament doctrine exalts it. We must avoid doctrine without love, heartless knowledge that Paul condemned right here in this chapter. So we avoid doctrine without love, but we want to avoid love without doctrine just as much because that's the foolish emotion and sentiment of compromise that Jehu, the prophet, condemned in Jehoshaphat. When Jehoshaphat came home from having messed around with Ahab, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Ahab was king of Israel. Jehoshaphat went to battle with the king of Ahab, with the king of Israel, Ahab. When he got home, even though God had protected Jehoshaphat, Jehu was at the door. What in you, the world are you loving those that hate me? You are a good king. There are many things in your reign that are good. But what in the world are you loving those that hate me? Because it was sentiment and emotion. And those two families intermarried. And it's called affinity in the Bible. And it was a judgment. And four kings of Judah are taken out of the lineage of Matthew chapter 1 because of that ungodly relationship. So, that being said... We don't have love without doctrine. We want both. And we want the crown of the road. We don't want to be in a ditch on either side. God in mercy has led our church 37 years from little to no love to much. But like I said earlier, we can do better. And we can do more. The 16 categories that I'm going to give you, and they may grow, that number may grow, the 16 categories I'm going to give you will certainly overlap, but the repetition's good. And it is by design. Brethren, when we enter the divine library, and if you tire of my illustration, then use whatever illustration does something for you. When we enter the divine library, and see that warm fireplace, and those 66 leather sewn books on the shelves, we come in with an expectation of finding something good. We should be filled with expectant wonder, and this topic shouldn't disappoint anyone. The other religions of this world point in a thousand directions, from child sacrifice to achieving nirvana emptiness to ancestor worship to suicide bombing to reincarnational death cycles to trips to Mecca, to stoning the devil in Ramadan. What do we get? Charity suffereth long and is kind. Mm -hmm. We have a transcendent religion from a transcendent God because there is only one God and he's our Father and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian churches themselves can vary from political agendas to growth gurus to seminary classes to music awards like Hillsong. Instead of these many diabolical and dysfunctional emphasis 
We learn love as the greatest relational virtue we can have when we come into the divine library and trust the librarian, that is, Almighty God, for what he's given us in Revelation. We learn that God is love. And if someone loves, they are in God and God in them. But there's all kinds of love. So what love counts? The love of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. That's the love that counts. God is love. And if you love your brothers the way that I just described in one sentence, you're in God and God is in you. And you can assure your heart before him that you are saved. This is 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is how you find the assurance of salvation. Faith is no assurance of salvation. The devils believe and tremble. Faith without works is dead. Faith is worthless. By itself, faith is worthless. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Peter said, we start with faith, and we add to faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and knowledge godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. But notice the top two tiers of the evidence of election and the evidence of salvation and the evidence of an abundant entrance into heaven in 2 Peter chapter 1 is brotherly kindness and charity. Amen. We learn God is love, that God has demonstrated love in the highest degree. He has empowered us to love one another and he rewards us for loving. Wonderful. Incredible. Love is exalted so high that even the greatest conceivable religious accomplishments like we've just read about are vanity without it. If your heart and mind are right, that sentence I just read to you proves inspiration of the Bible. Do we make too much of love? Hardly. We may sound too dramatic to some, but we love every word of God. If you wonder, every Sunday, whatever subject you take up, Pastor, you get so dramatic about it, it's like it's the most important subject ever. Yes? Do you fault me for that? Because it's the Word of God. And at one time I'm reading on one page, the next time I'm reading on a different page, and whatever I find there, it's exciting. It's worthy of drama. And the drama is we're in the house of God of the New Testament, the best of five houses, and we have a bonding agent given to us in the bond of perfectness, and it's defined for us with a beautiful sentence. It's the most beautiful sentence in the English language. Why shouldn't I be excited? I want you to be excited with me. Our recent study of David should provoke us to want to bind this house together and make it exceeding magnificent. Love is the greatest duty. Okay, children, you can write. I'm sorry. My introductions always get me in trouble. Number one, love is the greatest duty. Love is the greatest duty. God has placed us under greater obligation to love than the other stated duties of either testament. You can't get past the books of Moses without encountering this commandment. Let's look at it. Go to Leviticus. You know that book of the Old Testament, that book of Moses that we want to avoid in our Bible reading. Leviticus. Let's see if there's something there that's profitable for us. Is there something there that Jesus would quote? Is there something there that a scribe that Jesus said was not far from the kingdom of heaven would quote? Leviticus chapter 19. So many verses to read. But we can't read all the verses about love. We'd end up reading the vast majority of the Bible. Especially in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. He was teaching the same thing as the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord our God. Where does that come from? Is that Matthew 22? It is. Is it Matthew 19? It is. But it's really Deuteronomy. 
Because that's where Jesus is quoting from, Deuteronomy chapter 6. God hasn't changed. His form of worship has changed. He hasn't changed. He's still a jealous God that wants us to love him and have no competitors. Leviticus 19, verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Oh, that's a pretty full verse, even for us, isn't it? Thou shalt not avenge. Have you ever tried to get back at anyone in this church in any way, large or small? Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Do you begrudge anyone in this church for anything, large or small? Thou shalt not do so. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Look at the way that God writes his Bible. I am the Lord. All capital letters. Lord. The Lord Jehovah. I am that I am. The God revealed to Moses. I am the Lord God revealed to Moses. I am that I am. I am Jehovah God. And because of that, this is my order to you to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's talking about the church members of the Old Testament because it says... The children of thy people. You shouldn't avenge yourself nor bear a grudge against them. And so very early in the Bible, we find out that loving your neighbor, loving your brethren is very important to God. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 19, Matthew 22, and other places. The love of God and neighbor are not only commandments, they are the first and greatest commandment. Jesus, on a couple of occasions in the Gospels, would ask and would reason with and answer the question, what is the greatest commandment of all? The greatest commandment of all is clearly stated, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two laws hangs everything Moses ever wrote. In fact, if you go look at the Ten Commandments, the first four, the love of God, and the last six, the love of neighbor. The two tables of the law. Love is the greatest duty. It's called the royal law. James chapter 2 and verse 8. It includes all the law. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. And you who have fulfilled all the law, if you love your neighbor. Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. These are wonderful verses, but we can't go look at each one of them or we'll be on this subject forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ, heavily stressed, loving one another. Look at John chapter 13. John 13. You should be able to remember that. 1 Corinthians 13, John 13. John 13 has the Lord Jesus Christ washing his apostles' feet and giving them an example that they should follow. And Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. It's not new absolutely because I just read it from Leviticus. It's new comparatively. It's new emphatically. It's new illustratively because now we have an example of it unseen before. Moses was a good leader of Israel, but he wasn't like the Lord Jesus Christ. That ye, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. The standard is raised higher. The example is raised higher. Thus, a new commandment. Verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's not the one another compound pronoun, but it's one to another. It's one-on-one relationships. And that's what a church is all about, one-on-one relationships. There's no individual member of my body that gets forgotten. I did not leave a single member at home this morning. I brought every single member of my body, and they're all 
finely tuned for an 80-year-old man. Uh, don't ask me to do very much with them all, like before, but they're all together. One to another. Every one of us, to another, should be showing the love that Jesus Christ had to us. Right. Does he forgive you easily? Does he forgive you fully? Does he forgive you quickly? Amen. Is he merciful and loving? Yes. Did he sacrifice his life for you? Amen. Has he gone to prepare a place for you? Right. Is he totally committed with intercession at the right hand of God to guarantee the salvation of you and not a single one being lost? Yes. Absolutely. And we're to love one another that way. Look at John 15, since it's close at hand, we'll go there. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment. See, love is the greatest duty, which you could also put down. Love is the greatest commandment. Duty or commandment. You could put them both there. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, just hours before he dies, just a few hours before his crucifixion, commanding love to each other. The apostles followed the Lord Jesus Christ and ordered it as well. James in chapter 2, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. After believing the truth, here's what we should do. We've only got a few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 1. After believing the truth, this is what Peter writes in verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls... 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. What should hearing the truth do to us? Give us an intellectual knowledge of something that we can then lord over others or think highly of ourselves? No, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, the truth should purify our souls, our thinking and our lives, and lead us to unfeigned, not faked, but true, sincere, honest love of the brethren. And once we've achieved that, we don't get content. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Add compassion, add passion to that love for the brethren. This is what we're supposed to do. It's a commandment. James did it. Peter did it. John ordered it. You read 1 John 3 and 4 last night in your preparatory reading. Look at 1 Thessalonians about the Apostle Paul. What would he say on this subject? 1 Thessalonians. Let's first go to chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And the Lord make you to increase and abound. This is verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And Paul was one loving apostle. Chapter 2, about verses 5 through 10, describe him being like a nurse. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. How does a nurse, a child nurse, an infant nurse, take care of children a nurse cherishes children, and the Apostle Paul cherished the Thessalonians, and we are supposed to cherish each other the way Paul did. That's what it says. We're in the divine library. Whatever is written is written. We believe it. That settles it. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. 
to the end. He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes with the spirits of just men made perfect and splits this atmosphere wide open and we rise to meet him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, what is going to be establishing our holiness before him and his coming? Our love of one another. That we don't have, we're not fighting and quarreling and begrudging and envying and striving against each other. That's what it says. To the end, to the end, he may establish your hearts in unblameable, your hearts unblameable in holiness at his coming. Okay, let's move on into chapter 4. Because verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Furthermore, in addition to that, being ready for his coming, we beseech you, brethren, verse 1 of chapter 4, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Paul was never content with any church. The Lord Jesus Christ was never content with any church. Paul and the Lord Jesus, Jesus in the seven chapters of Asia, the seven churches of Asia in the Revelation chapters 2 and 3, press them, press them. Repent or else I'll come quickly and take away your candlestick. And the Apostle Paul pressed more and more. And this, this isn't a burden. We want to be better. Listen, any of you that, that love sports, you like a coach that gets that team aside at halftime and has a few nice things to say to them about coming out and playing a better game in the second half. You like it then. Do you like it now? Amen. Right now. Amen. I, mean, I mean, right now. Yep. More and more. Lord, bring it on. Amen. I love this word. I love Paul the way he preaches to this church. One of the best churches in the New Testament was a church at Thessalonica. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, well, then, Paul, why'd you write into them? Why'd you write in chapter 3 that they, that they would increase and abound yet more and more in love? He's, it, comparatively, he is pointing out that the Holy Spirit of God has taught them how to love one another because it's one of the graces and effects of regeneration. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And that's what regeneration should do. It changes us from selfish to selfless. It changes us from getting to giving. It changes us from self-oriented to other-oriented. Lord, change me more. Let me read 9 again. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren that ye increase more and more. Amen. Two parts to Greece, Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south. All the churches in Macedonia had felt the love of the Thessalonian church. And yet, Paul said, you're doing a great job loving one another, even those outside your church, but a little more and a little more. And I, I totally, listen, if it's as great as was described in 1 Corinthians 13, we want to give the Lord some more. True godliness or walking as God's children requires walking in love. Matthew chapter 5, the last six verses, tell us how to be the children of God and how to be perfect. What does it take to be the children of God and to be perfect? 
Love your enemies. Love. Is it, ever po- is it possible for a church member to ever be your enemy? Oh, yes. Is there a possible for your spouse to be your enemy? She can be. I can be. Yes. We're talking about those conflicts that come up when we're at odds with each other, and we should love our enemy. We should love our enemy if it's in a marriage, if it's in a family, if it's in a church, if it's outside a church. They want to despitefully use us, we pray for them. They want to hurt us, we bless them. We give them a gift if we can think of something to give them on occasion. It's all right there. Jesus goes on and teaches there, if you just salute your brethren, and if you just love your friends, what are you doing that the Pharisees don't do? But if you love your enemy, someone who's offended you, someone who's irritating you, someone who's disappointed you, if you can love them, ah, then you're acting like you have the right DNA. And the right DNA is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that made you a son of God because God sends his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good. On the blaspheming atheists in this world, they get kissed by his sunshine just like we do, and they have their flower gardens watered by his rain just like we do. And to be like God, we have to love, even our enemies. God's commands are not grievous, brethren. When we find a commandment of God that is stressed like this one, His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His rules are infinite wisdom. This is when, 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 when to love the brethren. It will save you from having the monster and the master of bitterness, revenge, envy, hate, eating your innards up, and occupying your thoughts. It'll save you. It'll save the others. It'll save our church. It brings glory to God. It adorns the gospel. It lets the world know that we're really Christians because the love we have to each other. Let them never hear about a fight in this church. Love is the greatest duty. We didn't get very far. I'm ashamed. I'm disappointed. And I don't care. Amen. Uh, we'll work on the rest of it as the Lord gives us an opportunity. Do you think maybe that when I say amen in a minute, you can hug someone? Why don't you just shout amen right now and say hug? (laughs) I'm going to bring up five verses that say you need to greet one another in here with a holy kiss. That's how the people of God met each other. They saluted one another with a holy kiss. Can you hug someone? Can you give someone a word of encouragement? Can you tell someone that you're glad that they're here this morning? Can you share your love of Christ with someone? Lord, help us. Please stand with me.